Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Well, I don't know how long you've been gone, but I've been gone for a few days and I restarted my computer and I've lost all my, like, I can't find apps. I can't even download them again. I don't even know what's happening. I don't. So I went to start this uh, episode like three times. Microphone was like out of control. I, 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 so anyways, I hope you're having a great day. (laughs) I really, really am. I do. I do. I hope you're having a great day. And I think we're all good here. And I have no doubt that if we're not good, my amazing producer, Brian, will figure it out because he's just that good all the time. He'll be like, wait, something went wrong with uh, episode 49. What were you doing, Bob? And I'll tell him, well, yada, yada. All right. So I do hope you're having a great day. We are in a we are, we are, this is the 49th episode, and and we are in chapter 35 of the book of Genesis. So we're doing good, I think. We've been cranking out like a chapter a week. And uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm really enjoying Genesis. Like in my head, it's uh, it's something I, I really enjoy doing. You know what I'd like to do sometime? You guys can send me some feedback on this. I'd like to do one of these epic narratives, but do it live. Like maybe, uh, you know, just find a place to be i don't know like a, a bar maybe <laughs> i think we need a few drinks to get through an entire epic narrative yeah i know you can't do 60 hours of of a story but we can do like a a couple days of of seminar i guess you could call it a conference epic narrative uh conversation really is what it would be because i would love to have the opportunity to interact in a live crowd but with the idea being that we would try and cover an entire storyline. So let's say we do last year's, right? We do David and we just, we just find a room, sit down together. Uh, I'll start talking and then we can interact around it and enjoy even more so what the Bible was designed to be, which is a conversation and, and community and relationship and connection. Like that's really what it's designed for. So I'd like to do that. You guys, uh, let me know what you think. Cause I, I, I'm super flexible and you don't, I mean, other than figuring out how to get to wherever you are, like I could come to you. Like if you think it'd be fun to, uh, you know, to have me in your living room with a group of people or in your church or at your bar and just say, Hey, let's just talk. I I would really enjoy that. I would really enjoy that. I would imagine by episode 49, as you guys know, if you've hung out with me before, I do all, I preload all these things. Partially because I think it's nice for my producer to be able to to get to it when he can because he volunteers all his time. God bless that man. And then secondly, it's because in my head, I see all of this like a movie. So it's almost almost like uh, my producer is like, you produce uh, the epic narrative, the material for the epic narrative, like most people binge Netflix. And it's true. Like I I do. Like I, I, I might do one a day. Sometimes I do two or three a day. But... Like my brain already is on the next episode as soon as I'm done. Like, oh, this this part, this part, this part. So that's how that's how I operate. That's why this year we added uh, the Bob thoughts because what we what we learned from doing David uh, the first year was there's no there's no real tie-in to the immediate culture going on, and sometimes I'm so far ahead uh, I forget what I've said. And sometimes we need to be, you know, reminded of something that that was said 20 episodes ago. So the Bob Thoughts just allows us to interact with it in more of a real-time sense. I record those usually the week before and uh, send them off to Brian, and Brian does whatever he does and makes it happen. I, to this day, really, he, he explains it to me, and I believe every word he's saying, but I don't necessarily understand every word he's saying. So... Sweet Lord. Here we go. Genesis 35. Oh, okay. Side note. I read an archaeological uh, report the other day. And I don't know if you've ever read an archaeological report, but they when it's written by an archaeologist, they are, it takes forever 
<laughs> to get to the point that you that I'm looking for. And God bless them. Like they're archaeologists are so detailed, right? Uh, obviously, they're wired for brushing dust off of things. Like they will spend years digging a four-foot trench just to make sure they didn't hit anything along the way, even though they know what they're looking for, you know, is five feet down. But God bless them. So when they write a report, they write over, they they refer to and give details about every other archaeological expedition and and archaeologist that has ever interacted with that particular site. Uh, they'll go back as far as it goes. So like I remember in this report, I think the first, I don't know, 18 pages of, I mean, single type, it is as small a print as you can imagine. The first 18 pages had nothing to do with what was most recently discovered. It all had to do with what was discovered in the last 150 years at this site. It was, it was fascinating. Oh, I was reading it on my phone. Oh my gosh. My, my eyeballs were about ready to fall on my head when I finally got to the part I wanted to read. Which I found fascinating because, and it does have to do with this this account, because if you remember Esau, his people were called, his nickname was Edom because he had red hair and his people were called Edomites. Uh, and and for years, people were like, nobody can find these cities. No one, no one can find these people. And it's the same with a lot of... Uh, a lot of these large numbers that are given to the to the is Hebrews, to the Israelites, to even you know in David's time, they were like, you know, we we can find Jerusalem, but like the, there's claims of these huge tribes and these you know million million people armies, and uh, we don't see it. Like the cities aren't there, the 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 uh, infrastructure isn't there to support it. Like where are these people? And and uh, over the years, they find these evidence of like, okay, well, clearly they existed. Clearly they were out there. Clearly there was a lot there. But what do we, like, where's the cities? And it makes sense. It really does. But we, we'll run into it today because Jacob Jacob is moving around the country. And, and that is not easy to do when you have thousands of people with you. And what the archaeologists have said for years is, you know, you can't do that. Like, like the sophistication isn't there. But this particular uh, archaeological article I read talked about the Edomites. Uh, they went to the these copper mines that have been explored many times before. And that's what all the first 18 pages was all about. All these other sites, you know, they'd gone in. And they talk about, you know, uh, Solomon's reign and were these the mines of Solomon and they, you know, <laughs> okay, now I'm getting into the details. Okay, I got to move on. I got to move on. Bottom line is they found, they're finding more and more evidence that this culture of the Hebrews was really a culture that was in intense. <laughs> That's a bad joke. It was a very intense culture. That this nation was a nation of, of nomads, but not a nation without sophistication. And they're finding evidence of of temporary housing, in other words, tents. And there would have been large uh, uh, infrastructures of tent, the infrastructure of of tenting, like they they built and lived in a sophisticated way. And they can tell because of the pottery they're finding and the jewelry that they're finding. They're like these guys had money. These guys had resources. They were not the nomads that we are usually you we usually see where they kind of are almost like homeless wanderers. These guys put together huge areas of influence, but they didn't actually build cities. And I wonder if some of that goes back to to the res, the the experience of Abraham under uh, Nimrod. And the fact that Nimrod was a city builder, and when he moved into the promised land, God said, I'm going to give you this land, but he didn't say, I'm going to, I'm going to have you take over the cities. It was the idea that you were going to possess the land. You are going to be all over the land. Your descendants are going all over the land. And that's reiterated again today in today's, today, in today's episode. We see that promise again. The idea is these, this nation 
was going to bless all nations, not by building and conquering, but by influence and culture. And they were going to bring a culture of Yahweh, a culture of a God of love and a God of goodness and a God of resource and a God of blessing. They were going to bring it to a world that was trying to find something to connect to. And when you are confident in who you are, you don't need to build defenses. When you know your purpose and destiny, you don't you don't put up a, a castle. You don't build a silo around yourself and say, I'm in control, I'm in charge. You're able to interact with, with circumstances around you through a place of confidence. And I think that's the culture that Abraham knew he was trying to build and that Isaac understood he was trying to build and that now here we see Jacob is being... Again, reminded, like, this is what we're trying to build here. We're trying to, not trying, we are, we are called to influence the nations through who we are, not by conquering them. This is a huge difference, and I, I, I emphasize it because it's a huge paradigm shift for most people that look at, you know, the promised land. They look at the promised land and say, God you know, it's going to wipe out everyone and give this land to Abraham and to his descendants. And I don't see it. I just don't. And when you when you take that paradigm out, when you say, okay, if God doesn't kill, and I've been into all that before, and I'll go into it, I'm sure, again, but if God doesn't kill, then how was he going to take over the land? And this is what I see. And it's easy to see it in the language and in the translations if you study it with a paradigm that says God looks like Jesus God doesn't kill. Jesus didn't kill. God is a from the beginning, which is light and love and hope and peace and joy. And that's the paradigm. That's the spiritual heritage of all of us. And so when I look at something that's been translated differently than what he says he is, then I look at who he is before I adjust and adjust the translation accordingly. And I don't adjust it by saying I'm going to come up with a new definition. I look at the definitions that are available and I choose the one that best fits the character of God. And lo and behold, he's good all the time. Oh my goodness. Okay. You're dumb. You're 10 minutes into this, Bob. You, you literally, I know. I know, but I did cover a number of things that will be mentioned later on today, and I don't need to cover them as much because it all flowed. It all flowed. My engineers are shaking his head like, yeah, okay, good luck. Here we go. Genesis 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel. You always like people who, who change, like instead of saying Bethel, you know, Bethel. Instead of saying Adam, they'll say Adam. It's so like... Mm, you just get all the willies inside. Like, ooh, they said something special. Then God said to Jacob, go to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were there fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob and his household took everything that they had and he said, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourselves, change your clothes, then come up to Bethel. Let us go up to Bethel, sorry, where we will build an altar to God who answered me in my day of distress and who has been with me everywhere I've gone. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods that they had and the rings in their ears and, the, and Jacob buried them under the tree, oak tree at Shechem. And there they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Oh, you're going to have to deal with that one, Bob. Terror of God. He put the fear of God in everyone. Yeah, I'll get there. Trust me. It's, it's not what a lot of preachers want it to be. <laughs> And you guys know that already. If you listen to me, you're like, oh, Bob's going to tear this one up. It's, I don't have to tear it up. I just have to translate it. <laughs> it's pretty easy. Oh, glory. So Jacob and all the people came with him to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. He built an altar. He called it El Bethel because God was there. Da, da, da. All right, here we go. That gets us through verse 8. So when it says, and God said... Please know that this is still an option. God's saying, I, this, this is what I'd like. It's not a command that if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. Now, a lot of people look at God's words as being that. 
Well, what if he didn't go up? Then God's plan would fall apart and the whole world would not be blessed. Well, no, I don't I don't think God's like that zeroed in on one sovereign plan that he will force everyone into. So we've and I've talked about that too, right? God's sovereignty is that he knows every possible answer, every possible choice you could ever make, and he puts his goodness there. He is not hopelessly uh, bent on forcing people to do certain things so that his plan goes forward. He's fine. He's going to be fine. Oh, I am still recording. Am I still recording? That's weird. Oh, I told you guys I restarted my computer. Well, I used to be able to watch everything on my on my screen the whole time I was recording, and I could tell how how many, how long I've been recording. And then all of a sudden, everything went black. I don't know what that means, but it looks like it's still recorded. I hope so. Oh, I'd be so bummed if if I lost some of that because I never know where where I am. I I actually get nervous anytime something goes wrong because I think I don't know what I've said. I just kind of flow, and then. And then if, uh, if somebody was like, well, just, you know, re-record that episode. It's like, I don't I don't know if I can. Like, if, if something happened to an episode, I'm sure I could figure it out. But internally, I, I get very uh, rattled when I think I've lost something. <laughs> oh, sorry, on with the show. So the, the idols and clothes that, that he tells them to get rid of, like, where did all these come from? Well, they came from Shechem. They came from the plunder of Shechem. Remember, the brothers wiped out, some think they, you know, they wiped out all the men. I think they wiped out all the elders, all the leaders that were in the, the group recovery zones near the uh, near the city gates. And they plundered their houses and they plundered their servants and they took all that stuff with them. And a lot of it was they took their gods. Gods were worth things. The idols were worth money. They were usually jeweled and you know, or at least laid over with gold. There was, there was value in them. I'm not saying that they worshipped them all, but there was a representation there that that quote Yahweh had overcome all these other gods, and that's not the way God operates. In that, He doesn't need some sort of visual representation of how great He is, but sometimes we do. So I think I think the brothers took all that, the family took that. They all got new clothes, they got new earrings, they got new jewelry, they got new like. All the plunder of Shechem was there. And Jacob knows that they don't need this stuff. And what they what they put out for everyone was, let's do something here that kind of sets us apart again for God. I mean, that's what God's asking for. He's like, let's, let's set ourselves apart. So that's what he does. And this isn't, this is not a religious thing. I think it's a very natural thing. It's a natural thing that when you interact with with heaven, when you are in the presence of God, it's very natural for you to be like, "Wow, is there something I can do to express my gratitude for what for the love of God that he has for me?" And that's what happens. You naturally interact with the presence of God and you come back and you say, "Let's I I need to clean my life up." Now, some people get that flipped, right? And they say, you need to clean your life up if you're going to get with God. And it's literally the exact opposite. You hang with God, you naturally clean up your life. And I know entire, you know, uh, programs that are built around that when it comes to like uh, addicts. What do I want to say? Addictive, pro- it's not addictive programs. Um, recovery programs, sorry. That are built around the idea that you interact with heaven and let heaven become your motive uh, to clean yourself up. Let your true identity, let your true destiny become your motive to clean yourself up. And that's exactly what happens. It's amazing. So that's what I see here. I don't see a religious uh, reaction here. I see I see Jacob just saying, you know what? I just had a great conversation with heaven. Uh, God wants us to, to move to this area, uh, to build them an altar, to just remember our testimony. Remember the journey we've been on. And I think, you know, in order to do that, we just need to clean ourselves up. So let's get rid of the idols. Let's get rid of the clothing. All this plunder that we stole, there's no need for us to have it. Let's just go. So they gave Jacob all their gods and all their earrings, and he buried it under the oak tree at Shechem. And then they set out. And it says the terror of God fell on the towns, and they did not pursue them. 
Now these these were this is <laughs> first of all he buries all this treasure right the buried treasure under the under the oak tree which is a another great little side note that you see in all the stories right there's buried treasure and he leaves it there he doesn't leave it under the guard of anything so I kind of think the people who still live in Shechem probably went out to that oak tree and acquired all of these goods again and took them uh, took them back which is Fine, fine. as far as I'm concerned, whether they did or didn't, I just think, why wouldn't they? I'm sure that they noticed. It's not like people weren't paying attention to what Jacob was doing. He goes, and, and it's not like this hole would just be like, oh, I'm just going to take a little, you know, four foot, uh, four, you know, not even four feet deep, you know, two couple feet across, couple feet deep. I'm just going to throw a few little idols in there. I'm guessing this hole was a big hole. Might have even been like cave-like. And he took all the treasures in there, and then he buried it. Well, I'm guessing people would be like, hmm, he's gone. Maybe we should go check out that hole. Anyways, that's just me. And then it says the terror of the Lord fell on people. Now, I do believe God gets credit for keeping people from attacking Jacob. They looked at Jacob, and they said, all right, uh, are we going to go after him? He's, he's in a place of vulnerability. He does have an army, but... I mean an army. He has security, I guess you could say. But if if you're on the move, your security is much less uh, potent. And you're way more, you know, way more susceptible to attack. Everybody knows that. So why didn't they follow him? Local tradition says a lot of people did not like the city of Shechem. They didn't like the people there. And some of the local cities and tribes around around Shechem were kind of glad about what Jacob did. Others looked at it and, and believed that Jacob's God was more powerful than all the gods that he had conquered in Shechem. So they were thinking, well, why would we take him on when his God clearly protects him? And the other idea was that Jacob was very powerful and he moved in these tent cities that were huge. And they thought, why pursue him? Let him go. He's a very powerful man with a lot of influential friends. And if we take him on, are we willing to take on all the other people that might like him? He brings a lot of money to our area. He brings a lot of help to our area. Just let him go. Let him do whatever it is he's going to do. Whatever the reason is, God gets credit for it. And the way that it's the way that it's written, you know, the terror of God fell on the towns around them. That was that was just a I would say like in our uh, a, an experiential expression of what it looked like. It looked like God kept everybody in check. But the reality is they just stayed in check. They stayed in check by looking at Jacob and saying, all right, we're going to let him go. Let's just leave him alone. So he gets there in verse 7. He built an altar. He called it Beth, El Bethel because God had revealed himself to there. And, and they worshiped the Lord and everything's good. Now, Deborah... Rebecca's nurse died and was buried under the oak at Bethel, so they named it another another name, <laughs> which I know I could tell you, but I didn't I didn't look it up right now. So here we go. Uh, now, if you remember, Deb, Deborah was the was like an elderly. She was very old, very old nurse. Uh, she was the nurse of Jacob's mom, and she nannied Jacob. So she meant a lot to the family. She's been around for a long time, and and they honored her. Uh, it was it was significant. It's significant enough that in the story it's mentioned because it it meant a lot to Jacob. She meant a lot to Jacob. So Jacob, in verse 10, it says, God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be called Israel. So he named him Israel. Wait a minute. Have we had this story before? Isn't this what the angel did when they, when they wrestled together? Right? I mean, am I, am I missing something? And God says to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful, increase in, in number, a nation and a community of nations. Ah, key, key phrase. I like that. Community of nations will come from you. And kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you, and I will give you, I will give this land to your descendants after you. And then the Lord went up from him at this place where he had talked with him. 
And Jacob set up a stone pillar and placed it where God had talked to him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He poured oil on it as well. And Jacob called the place where God had talked to him Bethel, or Bethel. And, and if you if you emphasize the L, L is God, right? So Beth is God was here, or God I saw God, or God's face, or basically it means a personal interaction with God. Once again, I note that Jacob didn't freak out that God was talking to him. Like it wasn't this overwhelming deal. It was it was it was a wonderful conversation. It was one that he wasn't uh, he wasn't shocked to be having, right? He knew that it, he knew that God would talk to him. So that was that was one. He gives him the name Israel again. This is the same name he got from the angel way back uh, several episodes ago. But people generally called him Jacob, and you see that in Scripture. He's often referred to as Jacob, not Israel. Unlike Abraham, who right away for you know for a number of chapters he's called Abram, and then when he changes his name to Abraham, father of nations, that's what he's referred to. Here, it's almost as though God's reminding him that his name to Israel is more than just. Um, a physical name. It's also a spiritual calling. It's a spiritual destiny. He is going to father nations. I mean, and reality is he has them, right? He look, He's looking around. He's got 11 sons at this point. And God's saying, you, like Abraham just had the one. Your father just had the two. You've got 11. And this is a, this is a calling for you. And he might have assumed and, and proposed that the that uh, uh, Rachel is currently pregnant, right? On this trip, she's currently pregnant. So he might be thinking, wow, I might have 12 sons. This will be amazing. Um, this spiritual calling is different, I think. Jacob is his earthly name. Israel reminds him of, the, of his destiny regarding, regarding heaven. So Rachel's pregnant. During this time, in, in verse 16, it says, They moved from Bethel while they were still some distance from, basically, Bethlehem. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. Now, I cannot imagine traveling while pregnant. It's hard enough, well, not that I would know personally, but the difficulty of traveling. I've had, my wife, of course, has been pregnant four times. I have uh, daughters-in-laws that have given birth to um, multiple grandchildren. Currently, I have 10, <laughs> which is awesome. I have a daughter who's given birth. Like, I, I've i been around enough of them personally to know that it's not, it, it is a sacrifice in those later months to travel, especially long distance. I had one amazing daughter-in-law who traveled like, I don't know, 15 or 16 hours to come spend, a, you know, a week with the family. And she was I think eight months pregnant at the time. And I just, everything within, within me was like so blessed that she was willing to do that because I know it's 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 uncomfortable. Everything about it's uncomfortable. Your body internally is so shifted with the with the the weight and the size of this mini human that you have within you that everything's sore and your joints are getting loose because your body's getting ready. And so you're just achy and you just want to sit and then that hurts and that, you know, that, and then you want to turn and then you want to roll and then you want to get up again and then you just want to stand and then you don't want to stand because it pulls on your back. Like everything about it, I know, I don't personally know. Every, I just know when I read this, this is what goes through my mind. She's pregnant during this trip. She was pregnant when they left on this trip. And now they're heading out again like, like Jacob didn't say, you know what, let's just stay here at Bethel until you give birth. He's like, nope, we're headed out to Bethlehem. So Rachel gives birth. Great difficulty. The midwife says to her, don't despair, you have another son. So she, she, it's not, she has difficulty during the childbirth, but the birth happens. She's still alive. And she's like, well, you gave birth to a son. And when she's breathing her last breath, she names her son Benoni. Now, um, Benoni means, I wrote this down. I'm looking. Oh, child of mourning, not 
sunshine morning, but morning as in death. Child of my death. That's what she named her son. <laughs> I know names mean a lot to the Hebrew nation, but seriously, that's a horrible way to live your life. I am son of my death. Ooh, that's a great name. Where'd you get that? <laughs> I just can't. Oh, anyway, so uh, Jacob comes in and changes the name to Benjamin. He keeps the name Je Ben, right, son, but he's like son of my son of right or son of righteousness, son of strength, son of power. So that's that becomes the last son of his favorite wife, and the twelfth, the twelfth one of the of 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 the crew, I guess, right? I, I think. I think that's it. Anyways, we'll see. So Rachel's buried. It says she breathed her last. This is what she named him, verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Bethlehem. So she was buried outside of Bethlehem. Currently, she's inside of Bethlehem, just so you know. Bethlehem continued to expand over the years, and her tomb, which was marked with a pillar, uh, is still there today. Rachel's tomb is still there today. Now, some people like to note that Rachel was not buried back at the family tomb uh, with with uh, Jacob's mom, Rebecca. Uh, people wonder about that. People some sometimes people like to draw the inference that because Leah was buried with Jacob and Rachel wasn't, that there's some sort of acknowledgement that the first the first wife is the one that quote God recognizes. And even though Jacob married multiple wives, including the second tier wives, i.e. concubines, the only one that actually got buried with him was the first one, even though he was tricked into marrying her. I, I don't know about all that. I'm just throwing that out there just to let you know that's what happened. Rachel, despite uh, her role and her position, as far as Jacob was concerned, is buried alone uh, and now currently in Bethlehem. At the time, it was outside of Bethlehem. Here we go. So then Israel, Jacob, moved on again and pitched his tent in another area. And while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And Israel heard of it, and Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. So this whole scene is important. I'm going to slow down here. This is important because it impacts the, the blessing later on in life from Israel to his sons. Uh, da, 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 da. Changes his name. There you go. So Reuben, the firstborn, he's the son of Leah. He's the firstborn son of Leah. Uh, oral tradition is where I get most of this. All right. So just so you know, this is written in the in the uh, Jewish tradition, Jewish teachings from the rabbis handed down through the years, called a midrash. Reuben's not happy that after after Rachel died. In his mind, Jacob should have moved in with Leah because she's the first, she's the wife. And instead, Jacob brings in Rachel's uh, servant, the one who I mean, she also has mothered multiple children here. But, but, uh, in his, you know, as far as Reuben was concerned, she's not your wife. My mom is your wife. And as a firstborn son, he's looking at at kind of taking on this role, possibly, of being the family protector. Like, when you die, I'm the firstborn son, and I want to set things straight. I want you to know it is unacceptable for you to be sleeping with the servant of, my de of, of a dead wife when you have a wife who is alive. You should be sleeping with her. So it says that he's, that, you know, she... Uh, uh, yeah, it says he wasn't, what, 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 sorry, I lost my place again. I got like talking into the ceiling and then I realized, wait, where are you? So he's living in that region. So this was over time. Reuben went in and slept with the concubine. Why would he do that? Well, you see, the concubine was also taking care of Joseph and would have naturally been the nanny to Benjamin because she served Rachel. So at some level, I'm sure Jacob is thinking, well, 
she's kind of mom to my two favorite sons now because they they both came from my favorite wife. So he's sleeping with her. She's way younger and maybe, I don't know what's going on. So by sleeping with her, he basically ruins her for Jacob. Now, some translations say that Jacob, uh, Reuben moved Jacob's bed into Leah's tent. And the wording of the translation, it can go either way. So either he slept with the servant and ruined her for his dad, or he picked up his dad's bedding, which was no small task, and he moved it into the tent with Leah. In other words, showing everybody, Jacob, dad needs to sleep with his wife, not the servant slash nanny that, you know, of, of Rachel and nanny to Benjamin. He needs to be sleeping with the woman he's married to, the first wife, my mom. Now, both had the same effect, whether he slept with her or moved the, t or moved the, uh, the bed, both have the same effect. It, it impacts the culture of the day. It, in, it impacts everything going on. People now can see a power struggle. They see some pride. They see some intensity of uh, a, a lack of unity between the, the firstborn son and, and the dad. Now, Jacob, uh, let's see, it says, oh, so interestingly, there's no discipline for this, right? Jacob finds out about it. He's not happy with it. And then it just says, and Jacob had 12 sons, and they list them all. And then after that, uh, uh, verse 26, these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Pada Aram. And Jacob came home to his father Isaac, where he was living, that is near Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed, and Isaac lived 180 years. And then he died. He breathed his last and died and gathered his people old, full of years. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now this is significant because there's no discipline of Reuben. And indications are that uh, Jacob went ahead and slept with Leah. Like he didn't fight him on it. But it will play a key role Later, when he goes to bring the blessings to all of his to his all of his children, when he dies, he gives the blessings to Joseph as his firstborn son, not Reuben. And he references this thing. He's like, because you slept with and or moved the bed of, you either slept with the servant or you moved my bed into the into your mom's tent. I I don't know which one. I'm not basically that's that that's your discipline. You chose your path. So Jacob moves in close to dad. Isaac, who remember thought he was dying way back in the beginning of, of, of these of these this story, this epic story, right? He's he goes to bless Esau over Jacob because he thinks he's dying because he went blind. And the reality is he lives like 80 more years. It's insane. He's been around for a long time, 180 years old. Right? Is that yeah, 180 years old. So he lived another, I don't know, was it 40, 50, 60 years after he thought he was gonna die, which is a long time to think you're gonna die. So I'm guessing maybe somewhere in there he got a new lease on life and decided I'm maybe I'll make it a few more weeks. Maybe I might have jumped the gun a little bit on that whole uh blessing of the children thing. But he's there 100 years old, 180 years old, he dies. He's surrounded by family, servants, loved ones. Everybody's there. And then it says Esau and Jacob buried him. So this is significant. Why? Because you remember Esau's promise, right? Esau's promise was when dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. So it's been years, 60 years since that promise was made. And a ton of stuff has happened along the way. And if you remember... When Jacob came back into the into the nation, into the promised land, he did not take any of the blessings from Esau. He actually gave Esau a bunch of stuff. Esau decided to keep it. And he was like, I have plenty. I can survive on my own. But Isaac's still alive. So technically, Esau is still running on the family business. He's still running on the family blessing. Jacob has yet to enter into 
the fullness of the blessing that he got when he started to run 60 years ago. This is, this is significant. So when it says that Esau and Jacob buried him, it means Esau came back into town. There had to be some tension going on, right? There had to be some wondering, is this, is this it? <laughs> Jacob's pushing 100 years old. They both are. But it's been, a, you know, it's a promise. And it's a promise that, that Esau never pulled back on. He never said, hey, Jacob, just so you know, I'm not going to kill you when dad dies. So everybody's wondering, is this it? And when they bury the father, like there's a there's moments in this in this uh, ceremony in which Jacob and Esau would have been standing alone together, honoring their father. And they're surrounded by guests and there's food everywhere. And there's, you know, there's a there's there's uh, uh, speeches and there's toasts. And there's interactions. These, these funerals were not, you know, I would say Americanized. Like they're not a, a four-hour window of time. These these things went on for weeks. And for somebody you're going to really honor, absolutely for weeks. And that that tension had to be there. Because not only was this there a promise of, I'm going to kill you when dad dies, but there was also all the family blessing should now go to Jacob. Because dad died. And dad said, you get it all. Like he blessed, he blessed Jacob before he left. And Jacob has the birthright. And everybody knows that. So what's Esau going to do? Is he going to transfer the wealth? Is there going to be a battle? Is there going to be a negotiation? Is he going to say, well, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to keep the family, the family blessing. I'm going to keep what I believe you stole from me. I mean, we can negotiate whether or not you stole the birthright. I might have given that to you for a bowl of soup, but let's just be honest, you still stole it. But that's a matter of opinion as far as Esau is concerned. I mean, I, I, I just just take a moment like, and think about the, the looks and the, and the innuendos and the nonverbal communication that went on between the two of them. I kind of picture Esau hugging Jacob when they when he arrives I think he's like you know dad's dead this is terrible remember J Esau had way more time with Isaac than uh, than Jacob did because for those 20 years that Jacob was gone it was only Esau that was with uh, Isaac all the hunting he did all the food that they had together all the banquets and celebrations all of that was in Esau Esau had to be heartbroken over losing his father remember Esau married into the line of Ishmael because he wanted to please his father. He realized what a what a pain in the neck he had been by marrying Hittite women. And so there's there was a there's a lot here. And at funerals, all this stuff comes up and it all gets tossed in the air, and people are wondering what's going to happen, what's Esau going to do? Every indication is that Esau played nice. That Esau came prepared to turn over the family wealth to Jacob. And I don't know how that gets divided, what, what belonged to Isaac, what belonged to Esau. But Esau kept track of it. He knew what belonged to his dad. He knew what had, you know, had in essence been his wealth, what was his dad's wealth. And even though he oversaw it for 60 plus years and did a great job, he was not a fool. He knew how to take care of things. He was aggressive. He he had a different management style than than Jacob, and the two of them really couldn't work together. But it wasn't that one was bad and the other one didn't. You know, one worked, one didn't. It's just that's where it went. The blessing went to Jacob, and Esau evidently brought everything that needed to be brought in order to transfer all the wealth over to Jacob, and he didn't he didn't kill him. <laughs> And when I sit here and I think, you know, in essence, I wonder why. I think it's because he knew through relationship with his father, Isaac, he knew this all was supposed to go to Jacob. Dad had been playing games. Dad was, you know, mom was playing games. They played favorites. They, they were trying to make something happen that God had said should happen. And somewhere along the line, Esau was like, listen, I am, I am beyond wealthy. 
I've got tons of stuff. Like, I don't, I don't need the family wealth. I've run the family, in essence, for the last, whatever, 50, 60 years. Jacob can have it. I don't know if Esau kind of looked at it almost like retirement, but, I mean, trust me, Jacob, uh, Esau's family line is huge. The Edomites play roles in the in the story, the, the epic narrative of the Bible. The Edomites play roles all the way through. And a lot of them reflect the character of Esau. It's fascinating to me how intense family can be and the impact it can have on nations. But Esau and Jacob here, they bury their dad and they they make peace with one another and they move on. And we're going to move on to the next episode of The Epic Narrative. I'll see you back here again next time. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. What are my thoughts? I, I listened to this episode and I thought, what what was your point, Bob? And and <laughs> it made me laugh because because as a preacher, you're kind of trained to always have, you know, <clears throat> three good points, a couple poems, and uh, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't have any good points. I don't think I made any points. Just observations. And I realized that that, you know, just reminded again, even for me, I'm reminded again, that that's kind of what the epic narrative is about. We we try to present things. I, the team, are they're all part of this. Uh, we try to present things in such a way that you ask yourself, all right, what what if that is true? What if what if that is what happened? And it gives you the freedom. I think the narrative always gives you the freedom to consider things. You know, sometimes when you... When things are presented from a singular verse, which is what we call like expository preaching, like just, I'm gonna take this passage and and I'm gonna make a point because this passage, you know, I think makes that point really well or whatever. It's very easy to get defensive against that and to stand up and say, I don't like that point or I don't agree with that point. And then it's like, well, then you don't agree with the word of God. And then it becomes this nasty thing. Or, they say, or they'll say something like, well, then maybe you need to find a different church because this is what we believe. And the narrative allows us to kind of sit back and say, what, what is going on here? Uh, and I guess at some level, I even did that today. I was like, what, what was this all about? And for me, I, I, I think it was about Jacob stepping into his destiny I think Jacob, after his father, after his after his son Benjamin was born, and his father died, I think he he was like, I am ready to be what I was destined to be, what God said I would be from the womb. And the whole situation with begging and eventually getting you know Esau to give up the. Uh, the birthright and then tricking dad into giving me the blessing. Like all of that is something that, you know, it's part of my past, but it's also uh, like, it's also in my past. It's okay. I need to move forward with what I know God has called me to do. And I need to step into it with confidence and I think that's what Jacob was in, you know, doing in this moment. He, he moment in this round of years that we covered. It, he, I think, became comfortable with his calling. I, I, you know, sometimes people are asked to do stuff from God, and you know, uh, there's there's lots of ways to respond. And I think for again for today, I, I just walked away thinking Jacob just was ready, or at least accepting. Uh, I think he thought he was ready probably 60 years earlier when he when he all of a sudden had to run from Esau because he was going to die, which uh, in the moment probably was true. But as we see, both Jacob and Esau bury their father, and and it's this whole element of like uh, uh, understanding of each other's role and peace between the brothers again. Even even though Jacob kind of left his brother hanging the last time they met, 
and walked in a different direction and didn't go live with his brother, his brother understood why. Like his brother understood Jacob, Jacob didn't come live here because he's not going to live under me. He's not going to live on my goods. He's not going to live with my provision. He's going to be on his own. I get that. Like he needs to be on his own. And I think at the at the funeral, which would have been at least a week long, I think we see Esau at peace with that. And he comes and he's prepared to give everything that is necessary for Jacob to have the inheritance that was given to him. He gives it all to him. And he's like, you're, you're in charge of the family. I've got my own tribe and uh, they are numerous. Uh, and we will always be brothers and I'm not gonna kill you. And there was peace made, I think, between Jacob and Esau, and I think between Jacob and his destiny. And it doesn't necessarily look like something dramatic, although I'm sure it was traumatic to lose their father. And like I said, I think Esau probably it probably infected affected him in a more intense way than Jacob, although Jacob, I suppose, would have been more impacted by the fact that he didn't have, you know, he he was missing at least 40 years or 20, 25 years with his dad. He just never had any experience with him. Like there, there's a lot that you go through at a funeral. I just think it's great that Esau came to a good place. Jacob came to a good place. And uh, that's what I would walk away with. This is a story where where brothers understand who they are and what they're destined to be. And even though their brothers are whatever, 80 years old at this point, they're both going to be around probably for, I mean, they look at their dad, they figure they're probably around for another 100 years. At some, in some way, they're like barely halfway, they're not even halfway through their life, which is crazy. But that's the way they would have approached life. They would have said, well, we got a long time together. There's no need for us to be at war. I've got my people, you got your people, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. You know, may God bless us both, and they called it a day. So, yeah, I guess that was a point. I just don't know if I ever made that point while we were listening. I don't remember making it. I just remember. <laughs> I just listened to it. I'm like, what? Yeah, I don't think I made a point. So I think that would be our point. And that's my thoughts today, everyone. Have yourself a good one. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.